0: Welcome to this latest and possibly greatest, or possibly not, edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew. While I continue to maintain the role of Chuck, the potential greatness of the show hinges on the man that would be known as the greatest, if not for Muhammad Ali claiming that title earlier in life, <laughs> the one, the only, a giant among men, and my favorite co-host with the most,
1: Drew. Drew. Yep. and um, it's good to know, Chuck, because I had heard rumors, at least on the fan chat boards, that uh, you were considering a trade. But uh, <laughs> well, that's quite an interest. Muhammad
0: Ali, but his <laughs> untimely death <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of negated my possibility of making a quality trade. He's a man of a few words, right now. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> Drew. I have to admit that I continue to be absolutely fascinated with the not-so-super group from the 1960s.
1: Yeah, you've been Very all on
0: Facebook up. with this.
1: Like, you got to make a special trip to Louisville just to buy that vinyl now.
0: I'm going to be going this weekend. I'm hoping to find it. But you know, <laughs> the thing is, I'm really not sure why I'm so snake-fascinated by this. And as you mentioned, I just posted uh, their album cover on Facebook. Then I found, yeah. I guess, their greatest hits or greatest hits. They're, their Facebook. only hits. they're only tracks (laughs) and then on Facebook I also posted here yesterday incense and peppermints so that the world could once again marvel at the talents of these guys you know Drew I'm afraid that I've fallen and I've fallen hard for these (laughs) and I can't get up (laughs) you know it's really um kind of a weird thing too because uh we get we talked about them and I started investigating things about them and and right now, because I feel like I'm their only groupie, I'm sort of like that dad who sits in the rain at the Little League <laughs> game all by himself, clapping, go, Johnny, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to the website, too, and found yeah. really who they are. And as we talk, that um, they are still out there gigging, as we know, and they are celebrating their 50th anniversary as a band. As a matter of fact, They'll be playing at the famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go Club in Los Angeles in November. Uh, these guys are actually from Glendale, California. And this is kind of interesting, too. Fifty years later, the band still features its five original members. Mark White's on keyboards, Randy Soul on drums, George Bennell on bass, Gene Gunnels on percussion, and Steve Bartok on flute and guitar. I'm wondering if he does that at the same time because at the
1: same time yeah, that would
0: be he really wouldn't need anybody. Yeah.
1: Now, are they going back to the Whiskey a Go Go for sentimental reasons? I know like a lot of the, your a, a lot of bands have come through there, especially that came out of Los Angeles, and they're they will occasionally go back there, even big bands. Or are they doing it simply because that is the only size venue they can fill? Well, uh, I want to say it's you, 200 people.
0: Yeah, I will tell you this. Obviously, it's a very famous venue for Great rock and roll bands, a lot of them get their start there and become well-known because of playing there. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know this, but going through the website, I also found out that Strawberry Alarm Clock has actually produced six albums. We thought it was just the one. Uh, yeah. I was also- surprised
1: they even had the one.
0: And they also so- refused to call themselves an oldies band because even though they are made up of a bunch of oldies, They continue to write and produce a lot of new music. Apparently, it's never made the same impact that Incense and Peppermints did. But at the same time, you have to admire their stubborn persistency and consistency.
1: Yes. (laughs) And they've made six out in 50 years. So that's more than one a decade.
0: Yeah. So I I mean, mean, they're
1: really churning them out.
0: They're probably due for another one here. And then we can wait (laughs) the next eight to 10 years for the following one. (laughs) And after that, if they do anything... I'll be surprised, but have you ever listened to the lyrics to that song? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. In various stages of consciousness. Yes.
0: Yes. Probably at a party or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that it came straight from the psychedelic era of the late 1960s. It was made in 1967. The words actually read, the lyrics actually read like a bad LSD trip authored by Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary, who was the godfather of LSD. Yeah,
1: and And, and in some sort of altered states of consciousness, it's like it speaks to you, it makes sense. And then you come out of there and it's like, well, it made sense, but I don't know what made sense about it.
0: What you need is a black light strobe to to listen to that song to really get the full effect, I think. (laughs) Yeah. To really, I mean, you'd need a motion sickness pill after that. I guess we move into our next phase of the show, and we talk about what we're watching, and you get to go first.
1: All right. Well, I, one of the things I've been watching a lot of is – this is on Hulu. It's in addition to a lot of the soccer that's been going on with World Cup qualifying and the CONCACAF Champions League – or Nations League and all that is Wings. I've gotten back into that again. And
0: Love that I show. like
1: the show a lot. It's funny. It's well done. I, I consider it not at the same level as Taxi and a bit of a Taxi ripoff. Uh, if That that might be too harsh a word, but you got Roy Biggins, who would have been you, you know Danny DeVito. You had Lowell, who was definitely Christopher Lloyd, who was Ignatowski. I, I think that Wings borrowed so much from Taxi, although instead of at a taxi cab stand, it was in an airport. But some of them, I mean, I watched it when it was on when I was in high school, but getting back into it, I'd forgotten just how hilarious some of them
0: are. Man, it is a great show. I love Lowell. I remember the episode where he had, I guess, what was it? Kind of a, a a model Zeppelin or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, The yeah, yeah. guy that was running the Zeppelin's name was Captain Jazzbo, and I have, <laughs> yeah. And somehow, Captain Jazzbo, I think, got lost during the episode for a while.
1: <laughs> well, what he he told he asked um Joe to watch it for him, and Joe couldn't help but play with it, and he almost crashed it, and then he had it flying in front of the door, and Roy opens the door and crashes the Zeppelin. <laughs> Just. <laughs>
0: It was, it's a quality episode. It remains my favorite. And it's a, it's yeah.
1: a that one might be the best one. <laughs> it is
0: a good one. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching a little bit of Netflix lately, and there is a four-part series called This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. It's based on the 1990 robbery of Boston's famed Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, huh. uh, in which two men dressed as Boston police officers entered at night, maybe around 1am or something like that, tied up the security guards and spent almost an hour and a half inside the museum, taking 13 very famous and very valuable pieces of art worth millions and millions of dollars, including several paintings done by Rembrandt, Vermeer and Degas. They actually stole Rembrandt's only seascape, Picture huh. about there's something about the Sea of Galilee, if I remember correctly. It's the yeah. only seascape that he ever did, and it's still missing. The crime has never been solved. The art, as I mentioned, still missing to this day. Wow theories involved that the heist was the work of a criminal organization, and where the paintings are, nobody knows.
1: Well, here's my question about that. You're not robbing a jewelry store or even like a memorabilia place. When you steal art that is at that high end, you can't liquidate it. Where are you going to take it? Who, who's going to buy it from you? I mean, I guess you could sell it on the black market, but it's almost worthless. Like say you, you somehow managed to get the Mona Lisa out of the Louvre. What would you do with it? Like, you, you can't just walk into, like, an art dealer and sell it to them.
0: Well, and that's the point. They say you know. that sometimes art is stolen by criminals to use as leverage later on when they get arrested. In other words, they say, okay, you've got me, but at the same time, I can get you back this valuable piece of art if you yeah. lighten up on me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and But the thing is, that hasn't happened. They thought a number of these guys who might have been involved with it who are now behind bars are sitting there saying we know nothing about what happened with that art we know nothing about where it might be yeah. so nobody is talking and i guess i wonder if it ever will surface if it's wound up in a private collection how do you show it in your home because people know that it's stolen right yeah <laughs> even if it's overseas interpol is probably going to find out about it and turn you in or arrest you
1: yeah i know like what can you re- you can't even display it because <laughs> Unless you want to tell people it's just a really good copy,
0: yeah. <laughs> you put it down in your in your basement next to your wet bar, yeah, <laughs> and amaze all your friends as you pour a beer, yeah. <laughs> like, I have no idea, but I am curious to see now if it ever will come to light what happened to that art and if they can recover it. Because if you go online and look up this particular story, they have uh, actually different sites dedicated to it and they show each piece of art and Vermeer for instance only did I think something around 35 paintings and one of the ones that was stolen was the most valuable painting he ever did. Wow okay. So I'm really curious it was it was fascinating to watch and I was kind of hoping at the end they would resolve it and there would be some hard theories but really most of it's just pure speculation and even some of the best investigators in the world who work cases regarding stolen art, they came up empty and they really have no idea what happened.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Drew, as we know, it's now time for perhaps the most popular segment of our show. I know it's at least popular and most popular well, with it, you.
1: Yeah, with half, family half members half who half might half.
0: stumble across our program <laughs> <Who do you laughs> with some sort of financial or monetary <laughs> stipulation that they will listen. But for those of you out there listening right now, it's who knew about Drew examine the magnificence of the manhood of our very own Drew Barnett. All right, Drew, here we go. Folks, lightning will never strike Drew because it's afraid that Drew might hit back. Drew is also the only one known in human history to be able to light his grill with a single glance. Neighbors who once lived next to Drew and lost their home in a somewhat (laughs) controversial and tragic fire still question the wisdom of that practice.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I can also put fires out with a single glance. It's it's interesting. Well, that
0: might come in a lot handier. (laughs) Apparently, the next door neighbors didn't think you were very good at that either. (laughs) Well, this is kind of a cool topic that we're doing for the sports segment of the show. We're going to be talking about the most significant moments in U.S. sports history. And uh, I'll kick this thing off. And I think you're going to agree with me. I I really do believe you will on this one. Jackie Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947.
1: That is way, way up there for a lot of reasons. I think it, it was at that moment that the major leagues truly became the major leagues. And while the Negro Leagues were great, as good, arguably better in the number of games that they played against major league franchises. Uh, the Negro Leagues won close to half and maybe even more than half. And you've got to keep in mind, those games continued after the major leagues sort of integrated and they lost a, a lot of their better players. Moses Fleetwood Walker had been an African-American player in the late 19th century. Uh, he was the last player to play Major League Baseball before Jackie Robinson. But I just think that, that you're right, because as good as the Yankees were, as good as Murderer's Row was what a shame that we never got to see the Yankees play the Homestead Grays or the Kansas City Monarchs or anything like that. And, like, what great history was lost because of that. And, again, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was hired right after the 1919 Black Sox scandal, would not budge on that, even though players and owners – had communicated that they had no issues with integration. They had no issues playing with black players. A lot of them did play against black players in exhibition games and barnstorming games. It was way, way, way overdue. The only thing that's frustrating about it, not to take anything away from Jackie Robinson, but why didn't it happen a lot sooner, Chuck?
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. And I also believe it's the most significant sports moment in U.S. history for me because of the way it it changed life in America. When you talk about, The middle of the 20th century, and blacks at that time in the initial stages of the civil rights era, very, very early on, fighting Mm -hmm. for equal rights. And here comes Jackie Robinson, and he gets to go on the main stage of the biggest sports in America and show that blacks are not only deserving, but they can compete and compete very well at that level. So it was a real source, I think, and a confidence or a confidence booster, rather for black Americans to see Jackie doing what he was doing and gave them the belief that they could fight for equal rights in other areas of American society. And so that's why it's big for me. It's big for baseball, but it's also big for America when you talk about what Jackie did for civil rights in this country.
1: So another big moment, I question whether or not to mention this one, but this feeds into it a little bit. It's, it's a quick one. You say most important moments in sports history. This arguably isn't that important, but I wanted to list it for similar reasons to you just said, because I think it's way underrated, way underthought about, and way undervalued, was the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany when Jesse Owens won two gold medals and basically was the story of the entire games that is celebrated i i think it should have been celebrated more and this was 11 years before jackie robinson and it was before world war ii uh shouldn't that have been a sign that a lot of the racism needed to stop and a lot of the civil rights should have been kicked in the high gear both athletically and culturally
0: Well, yeah, because you had the Nazis out there talking about the master race and how they were building this super society. And you have Americans back at home, for the most part, excited about what Jesse Owens did. Yeah. And then Jesse Owens comes home and it's like, okay, guy, you did great, but now get to the back of the bus.
1: Right, yeah. And how disappointing was that?
0: Extremely disappointing. And I think maybe in some ways Jesse – set the stage, help set the stage for what Jackie did 11 years after that. I think so, too. All right. Now, another key moment I thought came in 1920. It was the formation of the National Football League by 14 Mm. men who gathered in the Jordan and Huffmobile Automobile Showroom in Canton, Ohio, and look at the impact that the NFL has had on this country since it was formed. What, about 91 years ago? Well, 101 years ago, actually. My math was off. But a long time ago, George Hallis and a bunch of other guys had this vision of pro football becoming a mainline sport. Prior to that, college football was the big deal. It took pro football a while to get its footing. I think the 1958 championship game that was televised that went into overtime between the Giants and the Colts where Alan Amici scored... The winning touchdown in the darkness of Yankee Stadium in that NFL title game really put the NFL in the forefront of the American sports viewer and made the NFL, made people take notice of the NFL even more, that it was a great sport. There were great athletes. It was worth watching. It was fun to watch. And the NFL, thanks to Pete Rozelle securing TV contracts, then became very, very popular in the 60s. And that popularity has grown since then.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting uh, choice, because like you said, look at what the NFL has become. But in in its infancy, it was basically even less than a minor league. College football was hugely popular. Pro football would play games in front of hundreds of people. The rosters would turn over every week. And if I'm not mistaken, Chuck, when it first initiated, wasn't it highly regional? Like it was a lot of not cities, but towns throughout the Midwest, Ohio and Illinois, that made up the league. You mentioned the 1958 championship game. One of mine definitely, and I think you would agree with this too, is Super Bowl three. And I think that that was at the point that the NFL went from being – big like it was in 1958 to perhaps being the biggest and perhaps becoming more popular than even baseball uh this was the game where the Jets out of the AFL at the time which is which became the AFC defeated the Indianapolis or I'm sorry the Baltimore Colts from the NFL up until that point the AFL was considered a second-tier league, maybe not even that, at least by the NFL. But that game had star power. It had Joe Namath, who was really popular. It had a David versus Goliath storyline. And while in the moment, I'm sure the Colts and the NFL brass didn't realize that they were probably frustrated, that game probably made them all millionaires because how popular was pro football after that? Full disclosure – I was not alive when that happened, so I've only read about it. I didn't experience it. But am I right on that, Chuck? How big was Super Bowl three?
0: It was very big because everyone thought that the NFL was so much better than the AFL. Yeah. In the first two Super Bowls, the Green Bay Packers blew out both the Kansas City Chiefs and then the Oakland Raiders. And Vince Lombardi talked about the fact that uh, no team in the AFL could really compete in yeah. the NFL, and that really burned a lot of people in the AFL. And I think the formation of the AFL, which happened in 1959 and began play, the league began play in 1960, was also huge because it also changed the way football was played. In a sense, the AFL, unlike the NFL, played a more wide open style, there was a lot more passing, a lot more deep throwing, it was more exciting to watch. They set themselves apart from the NFL, which is sort of ground and pound, run the football until mm-hmm. you have to pass it.
1: And the Super Bowl, I don't know if that was at it, it, that moment, but it's become a synonym, the Super Bowl of. It means it's the biggest thing in whatever sport. Like, and I it, did the Super Bowl become the Super Bowl that we know now at that moment, or did it take a little longer? But that was a big one.
0: The two leagues had actually merged in 1966 because prior to that – There was a bidding war. They held separate drafts, and there was a bidding war for star college players. And they merged in 1966 to hold one universal draft, and they were moving toward an overall merger. But in 1967, I think it demonstrated that the merger should happen because the AFL was every bit as good as the NFL, and maybe even better in some respects, and that victory made people sit up and take notice and say, you know what, they do play great football in the AFL. And so then you also have the Kansas City Chiefs the year following that, mm-hmm. after the Jets won, they beat the Minnesota Vikings. They were the last full representative of the AFL. Yeah. The Vikings, the champions of the NFL. The Chiefs won that Super Bowl. So in essence, when you talk about NFL versus AFL in the Super Bowls, it was 2-2. Yeah, it was. All right, my next one, and I think you'll – we'll also find this an important moment. In 1954, the NBA facing a scoring drought where games were ending up like 19 to 18 approved (laughs) the use of the 24-second shot clock. And I'll I'll, I'll give you some history on the 24-second shot clock. Everyone wonders, well, why 24 seconds? Well, it was based on the idea of trying to get 120 shot attempts up per game. And when you divide 120 by the game length, 48 minutes, In the case of pro basketball, you come up with the number 24.
1: I never knew that. Uh, I did know about the 1918 game. That was a score of an actual game. I don't know who played it, so I can't sound overly smart. But the game was on television. And for the first and only time ever, the game was so boring, the network went away from it in the middle of the game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, get me something. Get me anybody. It's like a phone. There's nobody at the other end of the line. Yeah. (laughs) Just get me anything on the air. I can't stand this anymore. It was terrible television. But the shot clock really changed basketball and made it a faster sport, a much more fun sport to watch. And eventually, of course, college basketball and international basketball adopted shot clocks, too, as well. Right. Uh, My next one is, and I know you and I spoke about this a, a little bit Kurt Flood's legal challenge to Major League Baseball's Reserve Clause. Yes. The Reserve Clause bound players for life to teams even after their contracts ended. Mm -hmm. In October of 1969, the Cardinals traded Flood, who was a three-time All-Star center fielder, a Gold Glove center fielder, to the Philadelphia Phillies. Flood at that time was making $90,000 a year, but he was upset about being traded to the Phillies, who were a terrible team, He didn't really want to be traded. So then in December of that year, he wrote commissioner at the time, Bowie Kuhn, a letter stating that he was, quote, not a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of his wishes, and he had the right to consider offers from other teams before making any decisions. Flood then got in touch with the head of the players union, Marvin Miller, who told him that the union would back the player with funding for any lawsuit that he might file, which he did. He wound up filing suit in January of 1970, challenging the Reserve Clause, saying it violated U.S. antitrust laws, which are basically about monopolies, and he also compared it to slavery, and he accused Major League Baseball of violating the 13th Amendment, which bars slavery and involuntary servitude. He ended up sitting out the 1970 season while all this was going on. He's also the target of a great deal of anger and frustration from fans and fellow players. So he spent 1970 in Copenhagen waiting for things to develop. The Washington Senators later acquired his rights and he played about a month of the 1971 season before retiring because he was receiving death threat after death threat. He was a nervous wreck. He couldn't stand it anymore and he felt like it was just better to not play anymore. His lawsuit wound up before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1972, and it lost on a vote of 5-3. to However, the good news is Flood's efforts in his crusade three years later ended up with free agency coming to Major League Baseball, along with the so-called Curt Flood 10-5 rule, which says that any 10-year veteran player who's been with a certain team for five consecutive seasons has the right to approve or veto any trade involving him. Uh, NBA star Oscar Robertson later sued his league in 1978 in an effort to bring free agency to pro basketball. In 1992, the NFL agreed to give its players unrestricted free agency. All of that because of the efforts of Kurt Flood, who, from what I understand, died a very depressed man. And as he went through all this, I mean, it was an awful lot emotionally for him. And he was being pounded on every day. And in some respects, I believe Kurt Flood, because of what he did regarding free agency, belongs in baseball's Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, and maybe even the Sports Hall of Fame, because it did change sports forever. The reserve clause, if you can believe this, goes all the way back to 1879. And like you said, the player had guaranteed contractual rights as far as number of years and number of money, but the club or the team or the owner had. Rights basically in perpetuity. They like once the three years were up, they could res, the reserve clause. They reserved the right to resign you, and if you didn't like the offer, then you weren't allowed to play for anybody else until they released you. So whether that was a year, two years, ten years, whatever it was, and this was in place for ninety-six years, and. Even if you have a basic understanding of antitrust laws, you're probably like, well, how can that be? That, that violates every antitrust agreement that I can believe. But how many podcasts have mentioned Kennesaw, Mountain Landis twice in the same show? When he was commissioner, the Supreme Court ruled that I don't know the exact year, Chuck, I'm sorry, that baseball was not a business. It was an entertainment entity and that it could govern itself.
0: Which so that was why it was not a very place. good at.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, do you have one?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. One of mine, and I was trying to, I needed one for college basketball. And the one that I circled was the 1982 NCAA tournament Final Four. March Madness has exploded into maybe other than the Super Bowl, the biggest sporting event in the country. I don't know if it were always like that. But if I had to say, when did it become like that, I would say 1982. For the 1981-82 season, CBS acquired the rights to the championship, and they began presenting it in a similar way to, to what we're seeing now, to where it wasn't just a smattering of games, it was total coverage of all of them. The 82 championship was played in the New Orleans Superdome, so it was sort of the first one to be played on a massive scale in a football stadium, and through sheer luck, through all the television backing and everything that CBS put into it, it was a classic. It was the year uh, North Carolina beat Georgetown. A guy by the name of Michael Jordan hit the game-winning shot. A guy I by the, the he name of yeah, Patrick Ewing played. So it was, it was a really exciting game. And was that what catapulted the NCAA tournament into what it was? I don't know if it was that in and of itself, but I, I think that it was important. Three years earlier, you had the Bird Magic final. You could circle that. Uh, the 1983 year was the year NC State one is a Cinderella. They beat Fly Slamma Jamma, another nationally popular team. Uh, in 1985, very shortly after that, you had Villanova winning the NCAA tournament as an eight seed against Patrick Ewing and Georgetown again. And then in '86, this game's kind of been lost to history. Although, like it has come back with the uh, the documentary about Mike Krzyzewski, the final between Louisville and Duke at that time, I want to say was either the highest or the second or highest rated basketball game in history. So. I don't know at what point it became what it is now, but I want to say that it was in that era.
0: All right. We're running a little long with this segment, so I'll jump into my final one. It's the book Ball Four, which came out in (laughs) 1970. It was basically pitcher Jim Bouton's diary of the 1969 season, which he began with the expansion Seattle Pilots, who are now the Milwaukee Brewers. He finished the year with the Houston Astros in a pennant race the book shattered the image of Major League Baseball players, all being these clean-cut, clean-living, milk-and-cookies, early-to-bed type guys who said aw shucks all the time and never cursed. Bouton talked about then-taboo subjects of players drinking, especially when it came to the excessive drinking of – Superstar Mickey Mantle, which he took a lot of heat for,
1: yeah.
0: sex drug use, talking about greenies, which are mild of amphetamines that the players took, uh, especially during long road trips or after night games, using bad language. Bouton basically pulled the curtain back on the behavior of major league players away from the field, and I think he really changed the way that reporters covered pro athletes and pro sports reporters previously had this look the other way mentality when it came to the off the field activities of professional athletes and coaches and managers and things like that after ball four nothing became taboo and I guess I would wonder in some sense is that good or bad because back then I remember growing up in that milk and cookies type era and thinking that every major leaguer was a great guy and a wonderful family man and (laughs) Jim Bowden's book (laughs) kind of destroyed all that and uh now we always have a tendency to look for someone, say, who might be a good guy. What's on the other side of that coin? Is he really as good as he seems to be or she seems to be? You know, what's behind that curtain?
1: four is a well-written book. In addition to being a bit of an expose and – Like sort of uh, what like a tabloid almost it actually is I I thought it told it it depicted what life was like in baseball really well the funniest thing out of ball four I don't remember the player's name but he had gotten an STD he had given it to his wife and he was trying to come up with some sort of an excuse or explanation as to why they both had STDs like what could I tell her that it is and he put this person's name in there I I can understand. (laughs) teammates being a little ticked off about that
0: yeah I mean he was ostracized <laughs> for a long time yeah by, <laughs> by that in guy in particular. <laughs> he was a Yankees pitcher early in his career and a darn good one and the Yankees would not invite him back to old timers <laughs> day because of that Mickey yeah. Mantle did not talk to him for decades until Mountain heard that Mantle's son was very ill and I think this was the early 90s before Mickey passed away in 1995 and, and sent Mantle a letter and told him how sorry he was to hear about his son. At that point, the two were able to kind of mend their fence and, yeah. and come back together. But it was a very significant book, and it really changed the way that sports was reported on.
1: One of the things I'll mention but not mention, the 1994 World Cup win against Colombia. The reason is, while that was an important American sporting event, On the world stage, I don't know how important it was to Americans, unlike me. But the one I really had to mention was October 26, 1970, Muhammad Ali is reinstated his next fight against Joe Frazier. And look how big he became after that. I just needed to get those in.
0: All right. We'll end this segment, and we'll move into our next segment.
1: i will whoop any man in the world, and I want everybody out there on TV to know it. I am the greatest.
0: Drew, we're going to be reaching back into the Wayback Machine to discuss some <laughs> of our own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. So those of you with small children, you might want to take them into the other room and put some headphones on them with soft music so they don't hear much of this. Actually, we're going to be talking about our worst travel experiences. Uh, Summertime is vacation time. A lot of people are now with the pandemic seemingly under control, back out there traveling in their cars, in their boats, you know, on jetliners going around the country and things of that nature. They're vacationing again. So we thought we'd talk about Worst travel experiences, and we'll let you start.
1: Okay, Uh, by far, if you're, go big or go home, a trip I took to New Orleans, I believe this was back in 2008, I had just moved to Birmingham, a college friend of mine was living in Atlanta, I'd been down there about a month, and it's like, you know what, let's take a weekend trip to New Orleans, neither one of us had ever been And I should have known I was in for trouble because everything was coming together too perfectly. We got a really good place in the French Quarter for not a lot of money. And uh, it's like, oh man, this is gonna be great. We'll leave Friday, we'll come back Sunday and we're just gonna go down there and do Bourbon Street, do it all. Uh, We get down there and we, we learn that it costs more to park the car than it did to stay in the hotel. Uh, And you have to use the valet because there's just nowhere to park in New Orleans. So that was problem number one. But okay, you you know, we'll we'll roll with that. So we get into our room. We have a few drinks. We head out. And it was actually pretty good for the first few hours. But then we get separated. I'm not going to say the person's name. They might be listening and not want to be talked about. But we had both been over-refreshed. And he had become excessively over-refreshed and just wandered off. So here I am in the middle of New Orleans by myself looking for him, calling him. He's not answering his phone. Finally, someone answers, but it's not him. And they're like, come to such and such. And I don't know the city. I don't know where they are. I go there and it's the police. And I was like, oh, my God, he got arrested. And I walked up to the car. It wasn't him. It was someone that physically could not have looked any less like him. That had, I guess, robbed him or picked his pocket. Like he was a pickpocket and he had all this stuff. And I guess my phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And my name had been in the phone and the guy had seen it. So he's trying to convince the police that arrested him that he knows me and that like I'm his friend and like to let him leave that was bizarre i still don't have him but and they wouldn't give me his stuff back because they said they needed it for evidence so i just went back to the room waiting for him to come back he comes in at about seven in the morning says he can't find his wallet or keys or anything and he was just wandering around he wasn't sure how he found the room but we had to go get his stuff from the police we go in there and they're still holding it they won't give it back <laughs> And they didn't give it. So he didn't have his wallet or keys or anything for the whole time. And they wouldn't give him back, which struck me as asinine. Because I remember thinking, if a child was kidnapped, would you hold that child for evidence? Or would you just give it back? But uh, And then I had to take him all the way back to Atlanta so he could get the copies of his keys. To, and then drive him back to Birmingham so oh, he could brother. get his car from my place.
0: Oh, boy. I that's hate terrible. That. This goes back to my college days. Uh, I'm assuming that I must have had a lot less brain cells back then after yeah. I started to recount this story in my head earlier. My sophomore year, fall 1975, my friend Gary and I decided that we would like to hitchhike from our college campus at Southern Illinois University, which is located in Carbondale, Illinois, and go about 60 miles south to Paducah, Kentucky on a Friday night after we bowled in our league. We wanted to see this display, it was of a dead man in a funeral home window. The man, who had been missing for a while, several years before, had been found in a local river. And at that time, his body had somehow become one with a large log. (laughs) And the funeral home, to advertise itself, and I'm not sure why this was good advertising, decided to take this half man half log and put it in their front window. And a lot of us would talk about that. We read about it somewhere and we would talk about it generally after a few beers. Uh, Yeah. What could go wrong with this situation? Uh, And so we decided that at some point we were going to go down and see this very macabre display because it did sound kind of interesting. Well, nothing about our plan to go down and see it really made any sense because first of all, I didn't have a car, but Gary did on campus. At that time, sophomores and freshmen could not have cars on campus, but Gary somehow did. I don't know why we decided to hitchhike. I guess it was because of the, I don't know, maybe it was the lure of the open road. And, you know, it it seemed like more of an adventure at the time. So about a little after six o'clock that night, we walk over from the bowling alley to US 51 South. We had backpacks and we start moseying down the road and we start hitchhiking. And we got maybe about a mile down the road, and some guy pulled over and picked us up, which was great. We thought, well, this is going to be a snap, you know. So he takes us about 25 miles south to the combined town of Anna Jonesboro. And for those who want to know historical reference, Jonesboro is where one of the famous Lincoln Douglas debates took place. And right across from the square where that debate took place was a little bar. So This guy pulled over at the bar. He was on some kind of business trip. He said, Boys, I'll buy you a beer and then I'm going to be going on my way. I'm going over to Cape Girardeau. They also are a college town. They've got Southeast Missouri State there. And obviously, you know, they like to party on the weekends. Why don't you come with me and go to Cape and then you can come back to Carbondale afterwards? And we said, No, no. We just had to go down to Paducah to see the half man, (laughs) half log. So he said, Okay. And after the beer, we got up and we left and it was getting dark at that point. So we start walking back through Anna out toward. I-57, which was probably a hike of about, oh man, it must have been about 5, 10 miles to get out there. And we're hitchhiking and and cars are whizzing by us. Yeah. Who's going to pick up (laughs) two young guys with backpacks in the dark? Yeah. That part never really entered into our plan when we were putting this whole thing together. So we begin walking. And uh, at one point, all of a sudden we hear this barking and this huge dog that looked like I don't know what it looked like Cujo comes running across this field (laughs) at about a hundred miles an hour. And and, and we were certain that one of us was dead. And because I weighed more than Gary and I thought I was a little stronger than he was, I figured I could offer him up as a human sacrifice (laughs) and, and run down the road as fast as I could to get away. But he hit their property line. I don't know if they had electric fence at that point or not. He hit the property line and just stopped and barked at us from about five yards away. Wow. We wound up getting hungry, so we raided an apple orchard that was on the way. Walked all the way to I-57. Got there and thought, well, we'll get on I-57. There's plenty of cars there. Trucks, too. These truckers might pick us up. So we start going down I-57, and sure enough, a car pulls over. Unfortunately, it's got flashing red lights on the top. It's a state trooper. <laughs> oh. Well, it was nice of him to stop. <laughs> it was, It was nice. I thought, well, you know what? At this point, it's getting kind of chilly outside, so – I was kind of hoping we might get arrested. I was sitting in the back of his car eating some of these apples that we'd stolen from this apple orchard. And I thought, you know, a warm place to sleep and probably a meal in the morning wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. But he says, boys, you can't hitchhike on an interstate. It's against the law. And I'm thinking, go ahead, arrest us. Come on. Well, he doesn't. He said, I'm going to cut you a break here. So he takes us back over to the interchange where we started walking to get to I-57 and drops us off in the same place again.
1: <laughs> so it's like like a video game where you died and you respond where you yeah, were. Yeah, we respond
0: right back into where we were. We kind of <laughs> look at each other. Well, what are we going to do now? No one's picking us up. And it's starting to get pretty late at night. So we walked back into Anna and we wound up spending the night sitting in a laundromat because it was the only warm place that we could find that was open, waiting for a diner to open up. And then... <laughs> We sat there and we were sort of the entertainment for the late night people who were doing their laundry because we weren't (laughs) doing any laundry and they were wondering why we were there. So we had to explain the entire story to them while they were doing their laundry. About 5 a.m. One of the local diners opened up. We went over there, had breakfast, and we just figured we were going to be walking back to Carbondale. We had a 25-mile hike ahead of us. Yeah. And we started up the highway. We got back to US 51 and we got maybe two or three miles up the road and some hippie guy pulls over and asks us if we were going back to SIU because he figured we were stupid college students, which we're yeah. both stupid and college students. Yeah. And we said, Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going back up there. He goes, Well, I used to go to school there. He goes, I work over there at the mental hospital here in Anna. <laughs> and we're glad he said, Work, we're wanting to work or possibly are you like an escapee? Well, who cares? We <laughs> yeah. want to ride. I don't really care who you are. I just want to get back yeah. to Carbondale. He got us back to Carbondale probably in less than a half an hour, which probably would have taken us, I don't know, you know, four or five hours to walk. I'm not sure. I went yeah. back to the dorm room, slept for about three or four hours, and then went to our home football game that afternoon. <laughs> so that's <laughs> my there, worst travel experience of all time.
1: Yeah. Well, and then you got you're at the football game. So how did it go, guys? And, uh, you yeah. know, yeah, I got to tell, well, this was not good for a lot of reasons, but it wasn't. It wasn't the disaster that New Orleans was. Uh, for those of you listening that might work in an Ohio Valley school, you probably know that I have the nickname, at least in that small circle, bus. I'll tell the story of how I got that. Regional rules that year was in, I want to say this was 18. I think it was after my first full year at Morehead State. So this was summer of 18. Uh, was in Orlando because in NCAA, you don't get more regional Kentucky than you know Orlando, Florida it was not close enough to drive. And when we were booking the trip, I was actually on vacation in Italy. I was on the Amalfi coast uh, with some friends that I have that, Uh, live over there and I'm talking to my supervisor and we're trying to get the trip planned and you know the phone's coming in and out you're halfway around the world and he sends me an itinerary and he's like send this exact same one to the NCAA and they'll approve it so I copied and pasted and sent it and when I got home and really the day or two before the trip I realized that when I copied and pasted it I didn't send them the whole thing (laughs) So, so I ended up with a different itinerary. He's flying out of Lexington. I I don't even remember where I, oh yeah, up in, like I got, I had to go up to Cincinnati and catch a flight there. And it was from Cincinnati to, to Miami and then from Miami to Orlando. Well, my connector got in Miami, got delayed and then got canceled. And by this time it's one or two in the morning and the thing had already started you know, I'd missed everything that happened the night before, but they're obligated to get it there. So they put us on this Greyhound bus and we're on a bus from Miami up to Orlando. I get there at 630 and like everything gets started at seven. So everybody else that flew out of whatever OVC towns they live in, got direct flights in the Orlando. Uh, I was bus from that point forward. <laughs> the, well, the, the good end of that story, Chuck, yes. I later learned that my, my maternal grandfather who died long before I was born had a nickname of bus. I'm sure he got it under very different circumstances, but it was kind of funny to hear that or learn. And,
0: and the legacy lives on from the Chippewa <laughs> yeah. on down to the yeah. big group. They call Gitchy Goomy or in your bus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, really, uh, I guess my worst travel experience after the one I just told you about happened just a few years ago in July of 2016. Uh, we booked a cruise, my wife and I, in Alaska. And my dad went along on the trip. It was, we had a great time on the trip. But toward the end of the trip, they put us on sort of a land tour where we wound up either on a train or a bus. And during the course of that, it was like a 10-day trip. While I was on the ship, Of course, it gets kind of chilly up in certain spots of Alaska and it rains. You know, I I remember I I wound up out in the cold, you know, running around the deck in the rain and uh, I ran myself down a little bit physically. So by the time we got to the end of the trip, I had caught a cold and uh, I knew it wasn't going to be good because we had to fly home. And there was a flight that we took from Fairbanks to Seattle, then from Seattle to Detroit and from Detroit to Lexington you know, your sinuses are draining and all that stuff, that's not really a good time to be on a plane. As I quickly found out, when we jumped on the plane to Seattle, my head stopped up, it felt like a block of cement. And I couldn't hear out of either ear, hardly at all, which was very disconcerting. And the pain was starting to begin because of the pressurization inside the cabin of the plane. I could feel that pressure on my ears. And it was pretty bad and when we landed in Seattle. Uh, I had looked for some sort of a decongestant before we got on the plane, but couldn't find any anywhere. Yeah. And, and I was concerned. I knew I was in trouble even before we took off from Fairbanks. And I knew I was going to be in even worse trouble when we had that long flight that went <laughs> from Seattle to Detroit. Yeah. And it was an overnight, the red eye, and Drew literally with the pressure on my ears, it hurt so bad it, it felt like Well, it felt like my own personal version of Escape from Alcatraz, where they were trying to blast out of my eardrums to the outside world from inside my head. And it hurt so bad that I was actually kind of tapping my foot on the floorboard of the plane. I was watching some movies on that seat monitor that sits in front of you and trying to get my mind off the pain, but it was killing me. My wife was like, what is the matter with you? And I said, it just hurts so bad, I can hardly stand it. I said, this plane needs to get on the ground and needs to get on the ground in a hurry. Well, of course, then we had to have that connecting flight to Lexington. It wasn't quite as bad. But by the time we landed the following morning and got in our car and left, I could not hear out of my left ear whatsoever. And the pain was just so disconcerting that, I mean, uh, I wound up in the emergency room over here at our local hospital, And it was like the following morning at like 2 a.m. My wife had left to go to a family reunion back in Southern Illinois. I had stayed behind. So I said, I'm going to go to the emergency room because the pain is so bad. They gave me a steroid that kind of reduced the swelling inside my ear and allowed me to finally get to sleep. But I wound up on antibiotics for several days and that steroid medication. And believe me, one thing that will happen anytime I take a trip like that again there will be a decongestant in my travel bag.
1: Yeah there is a condition that people have I I forget what it's called like where they can't clear their eardrums or or keep the pressure from building up on a plane and it might take several days after they land uh, for it to to get back to normal so man that that can actually be kind of scary because you could permanently damage your hearing.
0: And that's kind of what I was thinking about the whole time. And now that you said I'm reliving it all over again, but uh, it it really did hurt. And I'm, I'm telling you, it took probably about two days for my hearing to start to come back because of all the swelling inside my ears. The Mm -hmm. right ear was a little bit diminished, but the left ear was completely shut. The right ear opened up pretty quick. The left ear took two to three days before I could really properly hear out of it again. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty scary because I thought, like you just said, that maybe I have done some permanent damage there. And fortunately for me, I did not. But that by far and away ranks right up there with our hitchhiking trip down to Paducah as the worst two travel experiences of my life. And hopefully those will always be the worst two and never be topped by any of them. Well, Drew, we've kind of burned up the last part of our show. So we're we're done for today. But we need to remind people uh, that next week we'll be talking about some of the emails and letters we've gotten from our listeners. We'll be reviewing a few of the better ones. And if people would like to email us and talk to us about the show and maybe make suggestions on topics or whatever, you can do that. You can email us at halftime two four zero at gmail dot com. Halftime two four zero at gmail dot com. Also we're in the process and we'll be in the process very soon of completing a website for yep. Halftime with Chuck and Drew.
1: Yeah, and some maybe some social media to go along with it, Twitter, Facebook, and all that too. So.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well thanks as always for your contributions to the show.
1: Oh well thanks you, Chuck, for yours.
0: <laughs> That's Drew Barnett. I'm Chuck Moraz, and you've been listening to Halftime with Chuck and Drew. <laughs>